This is Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, and welcome to my podcast series, The Voice of Leadership. Hi, it's Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, your host for The Voice of Leadership and for Dr. Karen Speaks Leadership. And today we are celebrating the life and legacy and contributions of Dr. Martin Luther King. And what I want to share today is a speech that he gave in May of 1956. And this is a speech that I haven't heard a whole lot about over the years, and yet it's a landmark speech and very important. And it's called The Death of Evil Upon the Seashore. And this message is as relevant today as it was when he gave it back then. It's based on the journey of the Israelites when they were coming out of Egyptian slavery and they were participating in the Exodus. And we will unpack that a little bit more in a few minutes. However, first I want to just mention the context of the speech, why he was giving it at the time, and the fact that this was on the 17th of May, 1956. It was a sermon at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine, which was an Episcopal diocese location. It was the second anniversary of the successful Brown versus the Board of Education decision. And although Dr. King had given this same sermon a couple of other times before this occasion in 1956, this was the seminal version of that speech, The Death of Evil Upon the Seashore. Before I get into that, though, I want to talk a little bit about Brown versus the Board of Education so that we have some context for the occasion and why he was giving the sermon at that time. Brown versus the Board of Education was a situation that took place in Topeka, Kansas, and in 1954, the Supreme Court ultimately ruled unanimously that racial segregation of children in public schools was unconstitutional. And that was a landmark decision. Now, a lot led up to it, and there were a lot of dilemmas and challenges along the way. And I'd like to go all the way back to 1896 to Plessy versus Ferguson. And in that case, Racially segregated public facilities were proclaimed as legal, and racial segregation was considered legal then because they purported this notion of separate but equal. And with this notion of separate facilities for blacks and whites and the notion of equality, they said, we'll be separate and it'll be equal. And of course, those of us who've been in these systems and know about it know for sure it was anything but equal, certainly segregated, definitely not equal in terms of resources, abilities, the outcomes and implications for children of color at the time. And what enforced all of this were the Jim Crow laws coming out of the South, where it really barred African-Americans from sharing 
any public facilities with white persons. That meant separate restrooms, separate restaurants, separate uh, places on buses. Everything was separate, including separate schools. Now, prior to 1896 in this Plessy versus Ferguson decision, we found that in this Reconstruction era, particularly in the Washington, D.C., location, many Black Americans were thriving and doing well. They had good jobs. They were able to care for their families. They were living in mixed neighborhoods. Their children went to mixed schools. They also went to restaurants with all the other general population. And they were even emerging in politics. And they were in the Congress and everything else. And we've talked about that previously on another podcast in the past. However, once the Jim Crow laws came up to Washington, D.C. and affected Washington and also the government, we found that it became increasingly more difficult for the Black people to really be successful, even in Washington, D.C. And by the turn of the century, we really had no one representing in the Congress anymore, as had been up to that point, and progress was significantly halted. So the Jim Crow laws really served to create what I'm going to call a new form of slavery in the United States. And it would be all the way into the 50s and the 60s, years and years later, before some of this could begin to be dismantled. And the Brown versus the Board of Education decision was part of that. So in Topeka, Kansas, there was a father, a man whose name was Oliver Brown, and he filed a lawsuit on behalf of his daughter, Linda. They lived within a couple of blocks of an elementary school that Linda should have been able to go to. However, it was a white school and blacks were not allowed to go to that school. The school she would have to go to, she'd have to walk a number of blocks to get to a bus. And then that bus would take her more than an hour's drive to an all black school, a segregated school. So her father didn't think that this was appropriate and that this was fair. And based on the 14th Amendment, which is the protection clause, where you are protecting all citizens so that no state can deny any person within their jurisdiction equal protection of the laws. So he filed this lawsuit in Topeka, Kansas, based on the 14th Amendment. Now, what happened in that district court in Kansas is that they agreed that public school segregation probably had detrimental effects on what they referred to as colored children at the time, which would be the black children. And that secondly, that this probably contributed to a sense of inferiority on their part. Nevertheless, even though they thought it was detrimental, even though they thought it would lead to a sense of inferiority in the children of color, they still upheld the separate but equal ruling, and they did not move to remove this segregation law. Therefore, Mr. Brown took his case to the Supreme Court. When the case was at the Supreme Court level, there were several other cases from South Carolina, Delaware, Virginia, Washington, D.C. that were very similar 
to his case. And so the Supreme Court rolled them all together under the banner of Brown versus the Board of Education, because all of these cases had very similar dynamics, and they were going to rule on all of them and at the same time, and they called them all Brown versus the Board of Education. Now, at this time, this was in 1952, that the case was going to be heard before the Supreme Court. Thurgood Marshall, at that time, was the head of the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. He was the head of that Legal Defense and Education Fund, and he was the chief attorney for the plaintiffs in this case. Now, what was difficult at the Supreme Court level is that the justices were divided, and the chief justice at the time, Fred Vinson, really had the opinion that that Plessy versus Ferguson segregation ruling really should stand. He did not want to remove the segregation law. So in September of 1953, when the case was to be heard by the Supreme Court, it turns out right at that time that Vincent actually died. Now, that's unbelievable in and of itself. And so President Dwight D. Eisenhower replaced Vincent with Earl Warren, made him the chief justice. And Earl Warren at that time was a governor in California. So through Warren's political skill and his determination, he was able to get to a unanimous verdict from the Supreme Court against school segregation. So on the 17th of May in 1954, Warren wrote, quote, in the field of education, the doctrine of separate but equal has no place as segregated schools are inherently unequal. That's what he wrote at that time. So they ruled that the plaintiffs in this case were deprived of equal protection under the 14th Amendment and that desegregation was to be implemented immediately at the local levels. They left it to the local jurisdictions to figure out how to conduct the desegregation. And even though Brown versus the Board of Education was a very important decision it did not solve all of the issues and problems because in local jurisdictions, people did not want to have desegregation very often. And so they found ways to keep segregation in place. Now, in the case of Topeka, Kansas, Topeka did move to desegregate the school so that young Linda was able to go to school closer to her place of residence and in the neighborhood. And there were challenges with that as well, which we don't have time to go into today. However, what was key is that even though this landmark decision didn't solve everything, it truly fueled the civil rights movement because now legally on the books, it was illegal to have segregation. And there were ways that communities could leverage this later to move ahead the agenda of a society that was more equal for all people. It would take other kinds of decisions, such as the Little Rock Nine case in Arkansas, 
some years later in 1957 to also move the needle it would take the bus boycott in Atlanta when Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat and so many other events until finally there was the Civil Rights Act in 1964. So again, landmark, although it didn't fix everything. So in celebration of the two-year anniversary of this decision, on the 17th of May in 1956, Dr. King gave this sermon the death of evil upon the seashore. And what this is based on, it's based on Exodus, the 14th chapter in the Bible. And we see all that went into the Israelites leaving Egypt and escaping out of slavery at God's hand and direction. And one of the pieces of this is that they had to cross the Red Sea, which was a huge body of water. And God is the one through Moses who parted the Red Sea so that the Israelites could cross over on dry land to get to the other side. Now imagine how you would feel after you're crossing over and you've gotten over to safety, you look behind you and now the Egyptians led by Pharaoh are coming behind you and chasing after you with their chariots. That would be very frightening. In fact, it was so frightening that the Israelites lost heart and they began to say, Moses, why did you bring us out here to this wilderness so that we would die as we're fleeing from the Egyptians? Weren't there enough graves in Egypt where we could have died there? And so they were despondent. And yet God wanted them to know that there was victory And these Egyptians who they saw coming after them, they would see them no more. That's in essence what Moses was telling them, even though it looked like they were defeated again, that really they were right on the edge of victory because of what God was going to do. So what God did is he caused the chariot wheels of the Egyptians to go haywire and for them to have difficulty. And they were crossing over in the mud, not dry ground. And while they got to the middle of the Red Sea, God allowed the waters to come back to their normal position and cover the Egyptians and not one of them escaped. They all died in the Red Sea because they were chasing after God's people after God had told them to let his people go. And so in their disobedience, they lost their lives along the way. And so in Exodus, the 14th chapter and verse 30, it says, so the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. So this whole phrase about dead on the seashore, it's really the basis of the title of this sermon, the death of evil upon the seashore. And I'd like to just share some points that Dr. King makes in this sermon that is still relevant today. And black people in the United States, African Americans have often related to the story of Exodus and the exodus of the Israelites out of Egypt because our own circumstances have been very similar and very challenging and very difficult to escape the slavery 
that we were in here in the United States. And without a lot of help from God and other people whose hearts were turned in his directions, we would not have escaped out of the slavery either. And so this is a story in the Bible that Black people, African-American people who were enslaved in this country that we certainly can relate to. And what Dr. King wanted to share with his audience at the time, and that's still relevant today, is number one, that evil is present in the universe. And it's been present for a long time. It's a part of the fabric of our environment. And he talked about the serpent who was disrupting God's perfect garden back in Eden. He talks about the fact that even though God is growing up wheat, the an enemy sows tares in with the wheat. And, and tares are weeds. You can't eat tares. Wheat is good food, but tares are not good food. And then, of course, even just the crucifixion of Jesus happened because of people having hardened hearts and not really acknowledging or seeing the love of God. And what he further says is that in the world at that time, and this is still true today, that there are calamitous wars, blood-stained battlefields because nations are trampling nations with the iron feet of oppression, and they're sacrificing truth on the altars of self-interest. And that's certainly still going on in our world as well. And he says this struggle between good and evil still exists. It's a struggle between God and Satan, although just like the Egyptians, they were already defeated before they went into the Red Sea. Satan's also already defeated. It just looks like he sometimes gets an edge and is about to triumph over God's people. And what Dr. King said is that good ultimately prevails. When we think about Good Friday, which was the day of Jesus' crucifixion, that gives way to Easter. Easter Sunday is resurrection. So it might look evil in the beginning, yet as we know from Romans 8, 28, that God works all things together for the good of those who belong to him, those who trust him, those who do his will. And so in this whole notion of death of evil upon the seashore, we see that truth, when it's crushed to the earth, will rise again. That's what William Cullen Bryant said. We see that no lie can live forever. That's what Carlisle said. So through the providence of God, the Israelites crossed the Red Sea. They escaped the Egyptian oppression and rule, and the Egyptians were dead on the seashore. And so Dr. King says there is a joyous daybreak that ended the long night of their captivity. And that's what he always prayed for and hoped for in the case of African-American people in the United States. There was this joyous daybreak that would end the long night of captivity. He's talking about the death of evil, not the death of people. And this is a very important point for us to keep in mind. He says there's something in the nature of the universe that comes to the aid of goodness in the struggle against evil. 
he says that what happens is that the Red Sea opens up and the exploited masses win their freedom from the metaphoric Egyptian oppression. And he says that Black people have been thrown into this Egypt of segregation. And that segregation is caught in the rushing waters of historical necessity. So it's wonderful that these Supreme Court justices were awakened to their moral consciences. And Dr. King says there are always white people of goodwill and who move to do the right thing. So he also just reiterates that there is a Red Sea in history that comes to carry the forces of goodness to victory. And we just have to remember that because that same Red Sea closes in to bring down and to destroy the forces of evil. So we want to praise God for his power and the greatness of his purpose And we want to pray to gain the vision and the will to be God's co-laborers, co-workers in this struggle. So Dr. King was saying, let us not despair. Don't lose faith in man or God. And he says, don't lose faith in man. He says, because we must believe that even a prejudiced mind can be changed and that man by God's grace can be lifted from the valley of hate to the high mountain of love. And that's why the battle is against evil and not against people because God has already made a provision for all of us to come together and to live together as brothers and sisters who love one another and under the mantle of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who he has sent and he sent Jesus because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that we really don't have to perish anymore. And that's a great thing. Dr. King was always preaching the message of us living together, hand in hand, all races together. That was really a large part of his dream, for us to live together as brothers and for all men to recognize the dignity and the worth of all human beings. That's still the dream today. And I think we have to remember that we see wars all around us. We see evil looking like it's going to prevail and triumph in many situations. And yet we have to remember that evil, the enemy, Satan is already defeated. God already has a victory plan that's in place. And when we look behind us and we see metaphorically the Egyptians entering the Red Sea, planning to obliterate us, we have to remember that God is our protector. He is our deliverer and that this will end differently than how it actually looks in the frightening and scary moment that we might be in. So I raised this speech that Dr. King gave, this sermon to encourage us today that there is still death of evil upon the seashore and God is at work to make that happen no matter 
what we see around us. So I hope that you will be encouraged by that today to know that long-term and in the end, evil does not prevail. There comes a time in our history where God will bring all of us to judgment for the life that we have lived here on this earth. And for those who've accepted his Messiah, the blood of Jesus is on you, on your life, so that the death angel will pass over you, just as it did for the Israelites that last night that they were living in their homes in Egypt and before they fled. And of course, if the blood of the Messiah is not on us, well, we may find ourselves in that case in with the Egyptians who enter the Red Sea and get swallowed up. But none of us, none of us have to have that fate. All of us here on earth have the opportunity to have the blood of Jesus on us so that we too are saved through the Red Sea to get to the other side of God's promised land. And that's important to keep in mind. So those of you who are in the workplace, please remember that some people do not know about God's plan and that God has this plan of salvation in place to save us from the Red Seas that we face in our day. And ultimately, the destruction that's coming at the end of the world when this age shall end. However, God did not make us for destruction. He really wanted us to live forever with him. And it is still possible. So in your workplace, reflect that love. Reflect that light. Let people know there is a better way. And whosoever will, that person can come to the light, come to salvation by the Messiah and escape all the evil that's planned really for the devil and his angels. It wasn't planned for us. However, if we align with the devil, we will go there with him, yet we don't have to. So just as often it's been said in the Hebrew scriptures, you know, God sets before us death and life. And the admonition is to choose life. We can do that. We can choose life. So I want to read a scripture that Dr. King quoted part a part of this at the end of the sermon. And it comes from Revelation, the 11th chapter. And here we are looking at what happens at the end of the world when we will see the Messiah return victorious. Right now, it looks like, unless you have spiritual eyes to see, you may not be aware of his presence today or how much he's restraining evil even today. Because if the Messiah was not on this earth, let me tell you, it would be much worse than it is right now because his power is still here on the earth. And later, that power will be very visible, front and center, and here's where we're going. So, Revelation, the 11th chapter, verses 15 through 17, and it says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. 
And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and the one who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. So let's remember, God reigns supreme, always reigns supreme. Let's be on the side of God because he's the one that will win in the end. He's the one that sits on the throne. Let's be part of that eternal kingdom of light around the throne of God. It's open to all people. It does not matter what race you are. It doesn't matter what country you live in. It doesn't even matter what you believe in today. You can come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ in your life. So those of us who already know that, let's share with people so that we can be brothers and sisters together here on earth and later on in the hereafter. Have a blessed day and celebrate the life of Dr. Martin Luther King and the powerful and positive message of hope that he's left for us that good triumphs over evil, even if it takes a while, and even if we can't see it now. We live in a world with so many divides between groups of people, and today I am with Dr. Clarence Schuler, the president and CEO of Building Lasting Relationships. Dr. Schuler knows that cross-cultural friendships are part of the necessary healing journey. So, Dr. Shula, tell us more about the power of cross-cultural friendships. Well, Dr. Karen, I'd love to do that. And, you know, maybe the most important relationship or one of the most important relationships we can build are cross-cultural friendships. And the reason, because we have so much racial tension, and we found that if people from different cultures become friends, it actually lowers the racial tension in America. Uh, Dr. Gary Chapman, the author of the Five Love Languages, the New York Times bestselling author, and I have written this book, this resource called Life-Changing Cross-Cultural Friendships, how you can help heal racial divides one relationship at a time. And we believe if people would get that book and read it with a friend and talk about it or make a cross-cultural friend and read through the book together, it can change lives forever and change the racial tension in America and make it a better one. So that's really our goal with that resource. Thank you so much, Dr. Shula, for sharing that. And for those of you out there, if you would like to donate and contribute to creating cross-cultural friendships in our world, go to ClarenceShuler.com and make sure you pick up a copy of the book for yourself and start a new cross-cultural friendship today. You've been listening to The Voice of Leadership with me, Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks. And I want to give a special thanks to jazz saxophonist Ron McMillan for granting us permission to use his gifted music on our show. Thanks for listening. And remember to go to my website, transleadership.com, for more strategies, insights, and leadership resources.